1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As a plant-based cheese company, Daya has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Hmm. It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love.
3: Making this program what was particularly astonishing to me because we're looking at 100 years of, of calling it shell shock because that's the name everyone called it initially, and it's the sort of it was the name given to this new kind of psychiatric disease, illness, wound. But what what is really profound to me is that during the middle decades of the 20th century there must have been the greatest unreported mental health crisis in in modern British history.
2: That was Dan Snow talking about shell shock in the First World War.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the popular historian and broadcaster Dan Snow, whose next BBC TV documentary explores how war has impacted on soldiers' mental health through history. He spoke to our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans.
4: I'm really pleased to be talking with historian Dan Snow, who's presented many history programmes on the BBC and beyond. Today, we're talking about World War One's secret shame, Shell Shocked, which will be shown on BBC Two on Monday, 12th of November. So by the end of the First World War, as many as a quarter of a million servicemen were suffering from a a mystery illness. Um, And perhaps we could start by talking about certainly what were some of the most common of these symptoms that came to be known as, as this illness shell shock.
3: Well, that's a really interesting place to start and the answer to that is 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 fascinating which is the symptoms um manifest themselves in various different ways but they could be an aversion to loud noise and very bright light and things which is understandable because these people have been exposed to trauma um industrial warfare you know artillery uh, high explosive supersonic shards of razor sharp steel flying through the air, shrapnel. Um, so that's understandable. But also there was the, the this, um, issues around movement, and I don't know if people have ever seen the the archive of the archive around the the, the video archive of of people with shell shock. But they had very spasmodic movements. They, they they went very stiff. They walked in a very pronounced way. And and what's really weird is that the people I have talked to say that. No one can really explain why those were the symptoms of psychiatric shock in the, first, in, in the early part of the 20th century. And now people who have battle fatigue, battle shock, um, PTSD, don't seem to exhibit those. The only reason that they could give me, and of course I'm not an expert, this is from the is my interviews, was that actually it's a kind of cultural response. So people who uh, uh, suffered a psychiatric wound... Um, had perhaps seen or or, or or seen film uh seen seen um something on the stage with with jerky movements with with inability to control one's limbs uh, and, and that they st- that started to manifest itself through their trauma. Uh, and what's really interesting is that now today it takes the form of flashbacks. And people think it's because in Hollywood, when you see traumatized former veterans in Vietnam War films or other films, they have they, they suffer from flashbacks, and uh, disturbed sleep, and things. So it is that the the symptoms of the profound psychiatric damage that people were sustaining t- t- seem to be dependent on the culture in which they exist at the time.
4: And I think you touched on it there, but I guess it's a point worth revisiting as we do approach the centenary. It was um, the scale of this conflict and the scale of this problem that really had not seen before and was so difficult to comprehend.
3: Yeah, I, I've i really wrestled with this and I would really welcome uh, any medievalists or any any period specialist to, come to get in touch with me on Twitter about this, because uh, obviously... To be present at a medieval medieval battle was unbelievably grim. You know, you read about Towton, which was arguably the bloodiest battle in British history, and it, you know the, the rivers ran red. There were bridges of dead bodies over which the Yorkists were able to advance and hack down the fleeing Lancastrians. Um, you, you talk about the Crusaders taking Jerusalem, uh, and and on the Temple Mount they were supposedly wading through the blood of their Muslim victims. So clearly, but the battlefield has always been an appalling place. But I and you, and you do anecdotally get these little glimpses of Boer War veterans. Uh, Napoleonic veterans, for example Hannah Snell, who's very interesting, she's a, she's actually a woman who served as a man during the Seven Years' War, which is my, my period of special interest, and she came back from India and she we know she finished her life in Bedlam Hospital, Bethlehem Ho- Hospital, possibly with what we might now describe as post-traumatic stress although of course she had a pretty tough life following that so it's hard to be precise on that. Um, and so we do know that v- veterans have exhibited uh, um, the, the effects of being in combat before, but that So it's very hard to say whether the First World War was something new or something exaggerated by the extraordinary impact of industrial warfare. And I think my gut is that there is something about that long-range death, that anarchic, indiscriminate death. And if you read Ernst Junger's Storm of Steel, I, I, I I think it's fair to say almost his worst moment was going up to the front or returning from the front with his unit, thinking they were out of harm's way in a shell landing and obliterating his unit. And it's that um, randomised and, and I say, sudden death. I think that could, that was particularly um, ba- bad for people's mental health. Uh, another one was being buried alive. We, we have many cases that in which, in which the triggering event for shell shock was being buried alive. So thinking you're going to die and being dug out by your comrades, and which was a common, which is a common occurrence in battlefields where you are using high explosive, uh, and, and so. So I think that, uh, but there's another thing I'd like to say about 23,000, which you've mentioned, is those are people that were signed off with shell shock at the time, okay? So those are people who suffered what we might now call battle shock, battle fatigue, instantaneous psychiatric uh, breakdown, if you like. These are people unable to serve because they've, that is not PTSD. PTSD, as we now understand it, it presents later uh, uh, apparently, around fifteen years later. So, what what making this program? What's particularly astonishing to me, because we're looking at hundred years of, of calling it shell shock, because that's the name everyone called it initially, and it's the sort of it was the name given to this new kind of psychiatric disease, illness, wound. But but over uh, what what is really profound to me is that during the middle decades of the twentieth century, there must have been the greatest unreported mental health crisis in, in modern British history. When all of these, first world veterans, not, not the ones, not, I'm not talking about the ones who actually were t- said to have had shell shock at the time, but ones who then were presenting years later with the, with the, with the scars, with the, with the effects of the trauma they'd suffered in the trenches or in the deserts or, or, or on the, on the mount, in the mountains of Salonika. You know, those people would have been presenting through the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, drinking heavily, often um, manifesting itself by uh, domestic abuse, so their wives... Girlfriends and children would have been the ones bearing the brunt. And we don't know about those people. We, we, we don't really have any evidence for the scale of, of that mental health crisis, but we can be pretty darn sure that it was, it was massive and it would have dwarfed the 250,000 people that suffered, that were, that, were, uh, that were said to have been suffering from shell shock during the war itself.
4: It seems that like a really important other programme is not just looking at the, the symptoms, the physical symptoms that manifest themselves with this horrible illness, but also with the stigma that came with many of those symptoms. Um, can we talk about how it was received, particularly in the First World War, in terms of with charges of cowardice or, or malingering? There were some really tragic stories there.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the First one. It's, it's very difficult, to be honest, because the First World War was both a time of appalling treatment of People suffering from shell shock. They said they had lack of moral fibre. They they were bullied. They were they were forced to stay in the line. Uh, they, they they and at the very worst, as you mentioned, some were shot at dawn. And, and it's thought that certainly a proportion of the men who were shot at dawn by their comrades for cowardice or desertion or other crimes in the First War, a good proportion of those we can now, if you go back to the court martial records, it's you can say with we I you can you can you can suggest that there were um, psychiatric uh, there were psychiatric factors to be taken into account that were genuinely not taken usually not taken into account and and there were pe- so there were people who particularly desertion there's a, there's an example of a young man who highly decorated actually landed at i think it was V beach or one of the beaches at uh, gallipoli uh, with, uh, you know, with with a, in one of the most extraordinarily heroic acts of the First World War, really. He suffered appalling casualties, won several VCs before breakfast. Uh, he then was buried at the Somme. He went back to Britain to have his wounds treated and absconded from a military hospital. And, he, and his mum, the most tragic thing is his mum hid him in this little tiny terrorist house in Salford, and, and the military police came from him and dragged him out of the house. His mother... Tra- I mean... And as a parent now, I found that really very disturbing indeed. It's difficult to talk about. And uh, and he was taken back to front. And he just simply he just simply kept deserting. He, he just wouldn't he wouldn't go into the front line. And eventually they uh, eventually they shot him. So I think it's reasonable to suggest that people like that that were suffering from shelter. So at the very worst, they would people were shot. But at best, um, and it depended on your unit, depending on your commanding officer, depending on your medical officer, depending division, and depend on the time of the war. If the back's the wall, March, 1918. April 1918, there would have been less sympathy, but at other times in the war, there was a degree of sympathy for people that were clearly suffering, uh, shaking, uh, visibly not well, uh, and and they were treated pretty well. And in fact, during the First World War, as well as the punitive side of it, you also get the development of, of of a very remarkable um, psychiatric first aid, where they push first mental tr- services as close to the front line as possible and really set the, set the. Uh, the, 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 to establish the method which all subsequent armed forces have taken up to the present day, where you're, you're, you're trying to identify battle shock, shell shock, whatever you want to call it, as soon as it occurs. You then try and treat it as close to that front line as possible, as indeed you would treat a wound, a physical wound, as close to that front line as possible. If you cannot deal with it with rest with talking therapy, you're, you're, you're taken back, you're, you're given a clean bed, you're encouraged to sleep, you're trying, you know, they, they, make, they attempted to heal these people. So it wasn't, as always with the First World War, that the clichés aren't true, this idea of these butchers sending young men off to their deaths to callously, it's not entirely true. There are shocking examples of how psychiatric illness was treated, but they're also completely remarkable and rather groundbreaking uh, developments and innovations that, that have helped to set in, helped to, helped to establish the last hundred years of, of how we treat
5: Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, pcom slash History Extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
4: I'd, I'd really like to talk about the um, the idea of a, a quick cure that came came about, um, and the government remarkably seemed to kind of buy into this idea. Um, why do you think that? What was and what can you tell us about the, the the early treatment of it?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, the First World War it was a tough, because it as always again again the myth of the First World War is so remarkable. It's funny, so funny of all the myths of all the wars. The one I completely find fascinating is the First World. War. The idea was a time of conservatism, of a very staid. Um, um, of 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 just of just a lack of, of any kind of innovation. Whereas, in fact, I, I, I'm sort of almost certain that there's never been more innovation and never been more change in four years of warfare than there was in the first World war. And just to quickly rehearse that, at the Battle of Lakato uh, and at the Battle of Mons, I think troops went into battle in a way that the Duke of Wellington would have recognised from 100 years before rifles obviously shot more accurately over a longer range and more rapidly but but there, there was there were lines of riflemen even standing up marching into battle sometimes lying prone of course and, and scratching out small um, small, you know, um, tre- I hesitate to call them trenches, but shell scrapes to to line. So, so, but and, and generals commanding on horseback and and r- messages passing from by, by word of mouth. Artillery at the front, up at the up at the firing line, firing over open sights, the enemy they could see with their own eyes. Um, four years later, so a hundred years ago, now uh, at the armistice, you have a, a, a form of warfare that would not is not unrecognisable today. A hundred years later, it is all arms combined warfare. You have aircraft dropping supplies. You have aircraft calling the shot at of of the fall of artillery. You have wireless radio sets. You have a dizzying array of, of weaponry available to infantrymen going forward. You have tanks, obviously. You've got armoured cars. You've got all sorts of things going on. So, and I think the same is true of, of, of medical provision. So uh, remarkable changes took place during the war that allowed a revolution in battlefield medicine to take place. And, and of course, that, what that meant is you had sort of weird... You had experimental strategies going on. You had, and you did have some doctors and psych, psychotherapists and psychiatrists and um, psychiatrists doing um, wonderful things. But you also had them doing kind of crazy things and using electrolysis and being quite firm and quite. Str- uh, so one quick cure. And you asked why they wanted to get a quick cure. Obviously, because they were terrified. This they were actually terrified. This was a disease that could overwhelm the British Expeditionary Force. That, that actually, what if this new war was so terrible that the human mind was unable to cope with it? What you know? What 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 happened then? And the army might dissolve. And so there was this desire to get, and, anyway, and there was a shortage of frontline infantrymen. So so for lots of reasons, they wanted a cure, so they needed a miracle cure. And some doctors stepped up and said, oh, we can deliver that for you. And of course, they got lots of funding and they got uh, they got lots of support. And so just, I, I'm actually on the solar now, I'm looking out of my window uh, at this beautiful straight, a stretch of water. And I can see the, in fact, I can see where the Titanic left Southampton. Rounded the Bramble Bank and went off, leaving cows to its south, and went off down the, the Solent. And I'm looking across at the um, other side of the Solent near Portsmouth, and there was a big, huge military hospital there uh, on on the Solent, and that was where some of the more bizarre experiments were taking place. Yeah, using electric therapy, uh, and being, as I say, not very kind to to um, you know, forcing them, getting them back on their feet, uh, trying to shock them, uh, trying to trying to uh, trying to just push them quite aggressively. Back to to full health, uh, and it's, it's And there are some archive images that survive of that that we shared in the program, which are pretty. That come across now hundred years later as pretty barbaric. You have to understand at the time, everyone was looking for a cure for this. It was a poten- potentially existential threat to Britain and empire.
4: Um, you touched. On it in an earlier answer, but I wonder if we could talk about the cumulative scar that this left. Because, as you say, it's not just um, the the you know the men who, and uh, women who are returning from battle, but it's it's the people at home around them as well that really really do suffer it along with them.
3: Uh, well, we we know that um, we know that uh, the one of the ways in which post traumatic um, stress disorder uh, sufferers uh, uh, one of the symptoms they have is violence. They show, and, and the main people that they show violence against are the people close to them. So, so, and I, I met several veterans of of more recent wars, and this was their experience as well. So it's, um, it's a, it's a, uh, sorry, anecdotally we explored it in the program, but it was it's based on empirical analysis. Uh, and so we, we yeah we know that uh, that uh, we know that women partners would have borne the brunt of of these men's trauma. As as they still do today, and so I, I, like I say, that the the fifties, the sixties, would have been a time of unspoken and and a hidden crisis of mental health and domestic violence. Uh, I met one chaplain, a parachute chaplain who was in Arnhem, and, and I asked him about PTSD, and he said, "We all knew it happened, and, and but what happened is in these very in these kind of more cohesive communities, more homogenous communities of the of of the old." uh you know of decades past he said that everyone would know that mr smith at number 45 had been at arnhem or he'd been at passiondale and every saturday night throw his wife down the stairs and the community would sort of absorb the wife patch her up take him to the pub sort of deal with it Uh, and it would not therefore reach a point of or it wouldn't reach a point of uh, reaching the justice system or or even um the official you know, official healthcare. So I think a lot of it will remain hidden. But I've explored the University of Birmingham and I talked about this other day. I mean we've explored an idea whereby we'd look at um we'd look at um coroner's reports because the coroner's reports do survive and, and they will often if a suicide occurs, and the suicide is very high among uh, people who have experienced trauma or post traumatic stress disorder sufferers, uh, and and we could look at trauma. Uh, we could look at coroners' records through the 20th century and see. We looked at one or two in the archive, and I was wondering whether we could expand this out more systematically, uh, because they will say in in the coroners that he took his own life, reason given uh, suffering with, from the after effects of being in, in combat. So that would that would be a little way into this story, because I think it's rather remarkable because we We all know that eighty eight percent of men who went s- serving in the first world war came home. This was not a war which claimed most or even uh, sort of most of of the people that fought the M- vast majority came home but it 's those people suffering from their physical but I think their mental injuries that that scholarship should turn to because actually the cost of the first world war might have been even more. Even more bloody and, and even more traumatic than than the traditional textbooks point out, and I just want to say for me, making this program was a real departure because I you know your audience may have watched a few things I've done and, and I you know I've been criticised been gung ho about war and I think I have been, and the reason for that is because several, several fold one is, war is many things but but. But and it's the most extreme of the human emotions. It's the most exciting and courageous and, and remarkable and brave, and it's also the, the worst and the most awful. Uh, and so you see human humanity at its most extreme. And, and therefore, um it's easy when you're talking about the Charge of the Light Brigade or the, the Battle of Thermopylae to focus on the kind of heroics and the and the remarkable bravery and the and the extraordinary physical and mental achievements of charging towards the enemy with a sword in your hand. But uh, and it's it's harder to, to to have the empathy to go back and 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 feel for uh, the 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 guards at Waterloo the the you know the the who were uh, who faced the final attack up the ridge or, or the defenders of Hougoumont. Um But but I think that when, and I also think that when I've met veterans, they tend to tell you the, the good stories. So they'll take when, when you're meeting a D-Day veteran, it's a kind of self. It's a self. Sense group, isn't it? Because the D-Day veteran wants to talk about D-Day is probably one who's going to have had better experiences there, and is keen to talk to the BBC and tell you how it all went and charging at the beach and dealing with the beach obstacles. And actually, this was an opportunity for me to to explore the other side of war, and it's been long overdue. And I feel it was a kind of personal. I I, I think I had to do it, and I, I have been guilty of being too gung ho about it. And I'll tell you something: I will never ever talk about combat and talk about the experience of people that have been in combat in the same way again, having now spent the last year with lots and lots of veterans, from Victor Gregg, 99 years old, who who still suffers with post-traumatic stress from the Second World War, uh, having spent time in the archives looking at, at reports of how First World War shell-shot uh, victims were treated, and all the way through now to people in the war on terror, Afghanistan, Iraq, and ex- spending time with their families, seeing the daily struggle that they have against uh, against uh, their 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 demons, sometimes even as great as the daily struggle against the desire to commit suicide. So for me it's it's kind of profoundly changed the way I approach things that's long overdue.
4: So your program looks back a hundred years at kind of the emergence of this idea of shell shock and then looks through how combat has affected mental health. but obviously we're, we're talking ahead of the centenary. And um, what other projects are you involved in um, at, at this time?
3: Well, dude, as you know, I'm throwing a lot of muck at a lot of walls at the moment. I mean, I came on this podcast for the first time 10 years ago this autumn we talked, it was actually, no, I told you, it was nine years ago, it was, <laughs> it was uh, autumn 2009, and I was talking about the 250th anniversary of the fall of Quebec, and I sat in a van with your lovely editor, and we did a podcast, and I was like, what's a podcast, what is this dude doing, this is crazy, man, I'm on TV, this is much better than being on TV, and I look back and think, Daniel, you stupid, stupid idiot, and I, because I, I started a podcast now, Uh, I started a podcast now only three years ago and we're already doing millions of listeners we're not as big as you guys but we're we're, you know we're uh, uh, we're doing right, and we've got millions of listeners and it's so exciting and such a great privilege and it means that like you guys find you can reach out beyond the commissioning editors who would control the magazines and the newspapers and the books and the TV channels and I can do whatever I like so you know this week on the podcast I've been having a US election special. And I've talked to a brilliant Calder Walton, who's at Harvard, about Soviet attempts to influence US elections in the past. It's so terrifying, wonderful uh, sort of relevance of history. It just, unless you learn these lessons, you are in big trouble as the Americans are today. So, um, and we've got a whole week of um, podcast episodes out. We've got people, uh, a wonderful um, Chinese historian, she is looking at the Chinese Labour Corps during the First World War. I've got shipwrecks of the First World War with an underwater a maritime historian. So that's all going on. And then I've got my my new channel which is a very posh way of saying um which is a very posh way of Uh, saying a website basically Uh, it's it's it's, i've got a tv channel now historyhit.tv and you can go on there and you can have a subscription and watch you know hundreds of hours of of history program the the dream is it's like netflix for history and it's exciting when it works it's great we've got thousands of people on there and we can do a live event and then we people watch the content and then we're podcasting it out and tweeting it out and it's all it feels like a really cool ecosystem a really exciting world where for people who love history they can all come together and do that and you know obviously we're you know BBC History Magazine is a key partner for us, so I love you guys. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment. So I, I'm flat out, I'm trying to create podcasts, I'm trying to make programmes, I'm trying to get. I'm trying to grow at historyhit.tv, and it's got 30 days free, so anyone can go and check it out without paying any money. So uh, I would uh, be lovely if any listeners fancy doing that. I've also got a book out as well. I don't know about you guys, I don't know about you guys, but you can help me with this. I, I, my audiences are fascinated by anniversaries. And I guess that's not hugely surprising, because people... I'm always surprised. People will get to take their birthday very seriously. And I hate my birthday for obvious reasons, but um, people take their birthday very seriously. And so, and that's the anniversary. It's the anniversary of the day you are born. So it's a day on which you kind of reflect about your life, I think, and about time and about ageing, I think. and Or if you're younger, the excitement of growing older. Mad young people. And so I've got a book out with 365 days of the year. 365 little historical vignettes. And each one of them is supposed to sort of shine a bit of light on our world explain something from the past. It's supposed to be interesting and, and funny and well not funny, it's supposed to be interesting and, and each one's supposed to have a fascinating kind of fact in it. But then also um each one is supposed to tell us a little bit about why the world is the way that it is today.
4: Well I, I mean you you sound like incredibly busy busy chat with podcasts and books and everything, but um thanks so much for your time today and talking about your programme um uh, on shell shock it's it's world war 1 secret shame shell shocked and it's on bbc2 on monday 12th of november thanks again dan
2: great talking with you
3: really appreciate it. thank you so much
2: that was dan snow and dan will be presenting a bbc radio 4 documentary this weekend entitled how we remember them about changing perceptions of the first world war it airs on saturday the 10th of november at 8 p.m. And we've now come to the end of today's episode but we will be back on Monday with more from the world of history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content Don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.